from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Scolding temps continue to bake the south, with high heat now set to barge into the Midwest and plains next week. So the current thinking is that um, we're going to be seeing the heat stick around from probably Wednesday through the weekend for much of that area. So that's that's a good five days of heat. A Kentucky community still grappling with devastation from a rare December tornado in 2021. And they were hit again with massive flooding this week. It's my 50th crop that I'm putting out. Never in my lifetime have I ever seen over 11 inches in a 24-hour period. Tensions escalate in the Black Sea region. I think the rally we've seen really is upon kind of the you know musical chairs that's going to be played here in regards to who's getting shorted with supply. But was it the only commodity catalyst this week? And in John's world, the Gulf of Mexico hot tub. Now for the news, escalating attacks and tensions between Russia and Ukraine had a big impact on the wheat market this week and Russia halting the Black Sea grain deal, an extension of the deal running out on Monday. The news coming just hours after a blast hit Russia's bridge to Crimea. Russia says the strike was caused by Ukrainian sea drones, but Russia said its halting of the grain deal had nothing to do with the attack. It said the grain deal was not implemented properly and that it would return to the agreement as soon as the Russian part of the agreement was fulfilled. Ultimately, participation in these agreements is a choice, but struggling people everywhere and developing countries don't have a choice. Hundreds of millions of people face hunger and consumers are confronting a global cost of living crisis and they will pay the price. However, a short time later, Ukraine said Russia was targeting infrastructure associated with the Black Sea Grain Initiative and its latest attacks on the country. Odessa has often been attacked since Russia's full-scale invasion of the country began in February of last year. But the port that was hit was part of the U.N. broker deal that allowed the safe export of grain. It's also reported a Russian attack on the southern Ukrainian port of Jornomorsk damaging grain export equipment there. And Ukraine's ag minister says thousands of tons of stored grain was destroyed. Russia saying it would deem all ships traveling to Ukrainian ports to be potential carriers of military cargo. We'll have more in our marketing roundtables coming up. Well, it's summer and temperatures are expected to be hot, but dangerous temperatures from Florida to California stuck around for several days this week with the heat wave impacting many in the U.S. Phoenix, Arizona, breaking its longest streak of consecutive days at 110 degrees or higher this week at 19 days. El Paso, Texas, reaching 100 degrees for the 32nd straight day on Monday. Eric Snodgrass, who is an atmospheric scientist with Nutrient Ag Solutions, says the heat is expected to push into the central U.S. and Plains next week, with temps in the upper 90s and 100s as far north as Minnesota and the Dakotas, down through Kansas, Missouri, and Illinois. And compounding the heat is the fact most models show little to no rain during that time. There's humidity in this pattern. So will there be storms that blow up in the middle of this and just use all that humidity and bring some cooler weather and bring some, you know, some, some decent precip? That's a possibility. So I would call it hot, hot with a lot of isolated storm activity. So there's going to be winners out of this and there's going to be a larger area that's going to see some, some damage. 
Well, two Canadian ports are facing a worker strike. That's after two dock worker unions rejected a preliminary agreement that was announced last week. During the previous strike, major supply chains in Canada and the U.S. faced extensive snarls at the Port of Vancouver and the Port of Prince Rupert. Meanwhile, in the U.S., supply chain managers are on edge as 22,000 workers at Yellow Trunking Company plan to go on strike as soon as next week, and 340,000 are possible at UPS. Employees are threatening to walk out if a deal isn't reached this month. Meanwhile, inflation is still an issue here at home, but China's economic growth is slowing. Beijing officials reporting the economy only increased 0.8 percent in the second quarter compared to the first. That's less than a half of the 2.2 percent growth rate recorded during the first three months of the year. Contributing factors include weak retail sales, muted private sector investment, as well as a decrease in exports. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen acknowledging China's current economic slowdown and it could negatively impact global economies, including the U.S. But she is not anticipating a U.S. recession because of it. USDA announcing it's joining with attorneys generals in 31 states to crack down on price gouging across ag supply chains. It's part of a series of new measures announced by the Biden administration this week that it hopes will lower costs for Americans and support small businesses. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing USDA's participation in the White House Competition Council meeting. Under the plan, the agency will partner with states to weed out anti-competitive market practices in food, retail, meat and poultry processing. We're pooling both our investigative resources and our legal authorities. That's going to enable us to better crack down on anti-competitive and anti-consumer practices that raise prices at the grocery store and deprive farmers of a fair return. Now it's also hoped the partnership will give consumers and producers more choice. That's it for the news. Well, we're keeping an eye on that heat to see where it could move next week. Plus, taking a look at the possibility of rains, we'll do that with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht and your forecast next. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the name on a cap matches the power of one's purpose. Pioneer, what's next happens here. now for a check of weather. Matt Engelbrecht joining us this weekend. Matt, the drought monitor continuing to show improvements in the drought situation with 50% of soybeans and 55% of the U.S. corn crop considered to be in drought now. But looking at the next week, it seems like all models agree high heat will move farther north as well as east. But do the weather models agree on possible rains? Yeah, I want to start off looking at the root zone and then we'll get to that question regarding next week's rain chances. Uh, the root zone map Looks better, uh, just not great. Still some pockets of some very dry soil. Uh, that includes parts of Missouri and once again back up into uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, as well as into Michigan as well. Otherwise seeing more blue back into Oklahoma and even into the Dakotas. You go back two or three weeks ago, that was not always the case. Now we've talked a lot about it this week and what we're going to be talking about the rest of next week, the heat. I want to show you just how all of this unfolds looking just at the jet stream. Remember that the jet stream is that ribbon of fast moving air, but more importantly, the reason it gets created is because it separates the cold from the warm or in this case, the extremely hot. And when it comes to a ridge of high pressure, which is what we're seeing here, that actually compresses the atmosphere and helps to 
stabilize the environment. What that means is as we go into Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, this is something that uh, as we were just asked about uh, the models all agree on is this ridge building and that difference between the really cold and really warm back up here to the north. That jet stream is going to be more along the Canadian United States border, limiting a lot of rain chances in and across the United States. It's not mean it's going to be zero, uh, but in this kind of situation, what we're going to be looking is uh, looking for air mass thunderstorms. There's just not a lot of energy around. We need dips in the jet stream to create those uh, bigger systems in and across the United States. The next big question, how long is this heat in the forecast? You see a little wave right here uh, coming up Friday, Saturday and Sunday that should bring about some shower activity back into the Midwest and up here to the Northeast. Otherwise, you got to look to the West Coast for the next kicker. So to kind of put it all together, the precipitation outlook is looking mostly dry once again, if not right about normal uh, back through the plains and the southeast as well as the south uh, with the possibility of wetter than normal between July 27th and yeah, already August 2nd as we go through the week into the temperature outlook follows exactly what we just looked at with that jet stream uh, with the extreme heat setting up uh, in and across the United States uh, with any below normal temps staying well to the north and this also includes Alaska. Alaska is expected to be very hot as well. There's a look at the temperature outlook for July 25th to July 29th. Thanks, Matt. Well, the markets have been very active to weather this year, especially when conflicting forecasts week to week. So what about the forecast that fueled corn and soybean prices this week? Chip Dellinger and John Payne join us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Chip Nellinger and John Payne joining us. All right, let's backtrack to the beginning of this week when we saw uh, that strike on the bridge, the Black Sea ports also uh, seeing some, some chaos there. When you look at what happened Monday, we really didn't see commodity markets respond immediately. Why was that, Chip? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, there's been so much back and forth about whether the Black Sea uh, grain corridor is going to be renewed by Russia. It is, it isn't. The market got a little bit weary. And then Russia came out and said, no, we are not going to renew that. And the market didn't react to that because I think, A, they thought maybe that there was still a chance. But uh, I think uh, by, uh, you know, the, the middle of the week, it was apparent that Russia was playing uh, hardball. They started attacking, uh, you know, some Ukrainian ports and then, you know, said, yes, for sure. Not only is the Black Sea Agreement uh, done for, but we may look and fire upon some of these ships that are moving into the Black Sea towards Ukraine. And that really is what spooked the markets. It's got the algos, uh, you know, coming into the long side on the headline. And the funds have been, have, you know, having sh huge short positions in the wheat market. We're a little bit slow to react and they continue to buy every break and are kind of caught short right now into a very volatile situation in that Ukraine Black Sea area. So when you look strictly at that news, John, is it mostly wheat that is responding positively and the momentum we've seen in corn and soybeans is due to something else? Or, or what is that the big driver of? I think corn and soybeans have their own dynamic going on right now uh, with the U.S. weather story. So that certainly shouldn't be ignored. But I think the rally we've seen really is upon kind of the you know, musical chairs that's going to be played here in regards to who's getting shorted with supply. So on the global balance sheets, the loss of a Ukraine crop, at least the export terminals, isn't a huge deal. What is a huge deal is if we're going to lack any commercial shipments at all in the Black Sea. So at this point, 
I think that's the uncertain events. It's like, how's this going to move forward? And you've, you've got a little bit of a price action uh, relative to 2022. I don't see that happening again. I don't think we're going to see, you know, $14 Chicago wheat, but I think you do have to, uh, you know, got a knee jerk reaction here by a lot of short sellers to just get out. And I think that's what's happened the last couple of days. You know, prior to this, Chip, I heard some analysts say, listen, because of the big crop in Brazil, because of world supplies, really, uh, we, we, we don't necessarily need all of that uh, grain out of the Black Sea corridor. And we're going to be OK, even if some things develop there. Is that not the case? I mean, why are markets responding so much to this news? Well, um, it, it is the case. I, I think, A, on the one hand, you know, Ukraine production is going to be uh, way less than a year ago, likely. Their planted acreage continues to drop. So they were really hampered to begin with. In my mind, it's more about Russia and they supposedly have a big crop. You know, that Black Sea, uh, uh, you know, grain corridor uh, probably benefited Russia as much as much as it did Ukraine. And now if that's going to really slow and there's been talk that Russia is going to keep some of that wheat off the market for an internal um, supply uh, reserve, so to speak, um, that really is maybe the biggest picture is, will Russia continue to supply the world uh, now that that Black Sea is closed? Certainly India and China have been big recipients uh, and big benefactors of that. And so that really is the big question here. And, you know, I, I think to, to John's point earlier, you know, the, the world wheat supplies continue to slowly shrink. And that was somewhat lost on the market. This last, um, you know, USDA report, um, the wheat supply situation continues to slowly shrink up a little bit. And now you're talking about some potential shortfalls in the Chinese wheat crop with some drought conditions there. And so it's a little bit of a different situation now that, uh, you know, the Black Sea is officially closed. All right, John, you mentioned weather. And as we look at the forecast over the next, you know, seven days, it doesn't look like much rainfall. We are going to get some extreme heat. What if we get rainfall, what does it mean for these markets? If we don't, what does it mean? Well, I think the, the move we've seen in the last days, whatever the cause of it, we've seen insurance costs for short-term options skyrocket. I think up almost 100% on the volatility costs for some of these out-of-the-money options. So that is kind of a front-running event where if this weather would really turn dry in August, you could see some short covering, obviously. But I think the funds have, have moved out um, uh, to a general degree. It it's really comes down to beans. I don't think corn is, is that threatening. It's, it's, a, it's a bean crop. The lack of acres, you know, puts a lot of stress on whatever we're going to have. The crush numbers, while they're smaller, they're still stressed out. And crush margins are really good. So a break in bean price isn't going to help unless you get oil and meal falling with it. And right now you've got meal up and oil, you know, front month oil trading near 70. So all in all, crush margins are really good. It's going to take more price to break the, uh, the infusion. Well, weather definitely is what the markets are watching right now. We're going to get Chip's thoughts on that later on U.S. Farm Report. Please stay with us. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Well, in June, scientists officially declared El Nino is here. And one reason, the water in the Pacific. But talk to any meteorologist. And in order for El Nino to fully engage, it has to start impacting pressure and the flow of the atmosphere. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So what do these boiling ocean temps mean? Here's John Phipps. 
We've had this pool long enough to go through three vinyl liners, and while it's always a focal point for summer family gatherings, Jan and I swim almost daily. But just like a thermostat in the house, there is significant debate about the ideal pool temperature. I like it cold enough to trigger at least a mild thrill when diving in, but the majority opinion, which would be Jan, has concluded the right answer is 84. We long ago decided heating the pool with propane was too expensive and a hassle, so early spring and late summer offer some thermal challenges. I think the pool got up to 90 one year, maybe 2012, during a hot, dry summer, which really took a lot of the fun and heat relief out of the experience. As a result, when I read about the current temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico this summer, which is not yet half through, mind you, I was aghast. Sea temperatures at Tampa and Clearwater have passed 90 degrees repeatedly, and the forecast is not for any cool off. This is my favorite extreme right here. 97 degrees at the tip of Florida. That's a hot tub, not an ocean. Not only do these temperatures make it tough for swimmers to cool off, but they also bake, take a toll on marine life. Coral bleaches and dyes, for example, as you can tell, it's a gulf-wide phenomenon, and high ocean temperatures are a global feature this summer. Decades ago, I learned not to visit Florida in summer, especially August, after my parents had retired there. This recent sea of very warm water means cooler land temperatures surrounding the gulf will be a long time arriving this fall. It even has implications for Midwest farmers. Well, we have, through no fault of our own, largely escaped triple digits and are gasping by on just enough rain. Getting through the summer may not be our biggest challenge. Too many times I have fretted through July and August trying to grow acceptable yields while forgetting possible harvest downpours from super juicy hurricanes meandering for days up from the Gulf as they fizzle out. Memories of ripe crops in standing water, storm-flattened stalks, machines clogged with mud, and ruts in the field easily spring to mind. The Gulf is set up for such a monsoon harvest for us thanks to that record warm pool of precipitation fuel. Our meteorologists will likely be all over this. Not being able to get a good crop out of the field would be a dismal way to end an already anxious growing season. Thank you, John. Well, when we come back, Commissioner Repeat has tractor tails this week. That's next. Hey folks, something we've never featured on Tractor Tales for you this week. We're headed to Texas to check out a cultivator made by Emerson Brantingham. Until I got involved in the museum, I'd never seen an Emerson Brandingham. And I think this is the only one I've seen in person. I've seen it on the TV shows and Tractor Tales and different ones on RFD TV. But it, it was uh, used for cultivating. It didn't have a belt pull. It wasn't used for thrashing. Or more like a motorized cultivator. Later, this one was built in the, around 1915, and later, 1928, was Emerson Brandingham Company, which they built equipment and other things, was acquired by Case in 1928. So the name slowly 
wasn't available in the Emerson Brandenham name, but Case acquired it and continued building some of their equipment and things. But pretty unique. And this was restored by two of our volunteers, uh, Red Rivers and Doyle McFearn. And they were restored in our facilities and did a great job. And they were up way up in their years, in their 70s, when they did this. And you can check out more Tractor Tales on the Tractor Tales Facebook page. All right, when we come back, what factors or events could shape agriculture over the next 6 to 12 months? We take a look and have views from ag economists from across the country next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, ag economists' views on the farm economy over the next 12 months, those are turning more positive. At least that's according to the July Ag Economists Monthly Monitor revealed this week. And as weather and feed costs continue to be the biggest driver in the short run, it's geopolitical risks, including what's happening in the Black Sea region this week, that could be the biggest wild cards in the months ahead. As commodity prices experienced more extreme swings this week, the latest Ag Economist's monthly monitor shows economists continue to shift their outlook on agriculture. You know, in the very short run, uh, they're, they're saying today maybe a little less uh, positive than where they would have been in, in June. I think that has a lot to do with, with weather and, and general market moves that we've seen over the last uh, few weeks. But in the longer run, that's where things turn more optimistic. Yet. When you look ahead of what they expect uh, 12 months from now, uh, they became much more optimistic about where we're headed in, in, in front of us. So a little bit of drag here in the short run is, is kind of what we get out of the monitor this time, but maybe some more positives down the road. Scott Brown is an agricultural economist with the University of Missouri who helps author the survey each month. He says while most economists remain positive to very positive for the outlook on crops, Livestock is where the monthly monitor saw more of a drag. I think dairy, pork in particular are the, the two sectors that really stick out, providing that negative on, on the livestock side of the equation. However, I will say when you think about pork in particular, uh, hog prices have come up a lot, uh, but it's been milk that's really been dragging the worst as we've looked at the last uh, few weeks again. The biggest concern for livestock producers right now, the Ag Economists surveyed, say it's feed costs. We continue to see fairly high feed costs uh, affecting profitability. So even in the case of cattle where we're talking record cattle prices, we're not talking record profitability because of the feed cost side. So that's always number one. The next biggest area of concern is domestic and export demand. And while ag economists lowered their milk price forecast, both cattle and hog prices produced optimism. I just think when you look at where pork prices have gone over the last month, uh, it, it's gotten more positive. Now, I don't want to suggest that we're back in, in black ink, but uh, we have seen recovery in things like the pork cutout value. And I think our economists are starting to to, to share that similar thing yet that they continue to worry about how the general economy will affect the man going forward. Uh, but it seems to me that, that we're seeing a more positive view uh, at, at, from a livestock perspective in this month's uh, survey. Another closely watched aspect of the monthly monitor was the change in forecasting crop yields. 
Brown says the survey was sent the day after USDA cut its corn yield forecast in the July WASDE report. And this month's survey shows an average corn yield estimate of 174 bushels per acre. That's down from USDA's 177.5, but also four bushels per acre lower than what economists said in June. You know, for me, the interesting piece of this story is there's a lot of variability in the responses that we got back from those being surveyed. We had uh, yield estimates slightly below 170, uh, some all the way above 180. So uh, it, it is a wide range. Economists also cut their average soybean yield forecast by half a bushel. Now at 50.6 bushels per acre, that's lower than USDA's current projection of 52 bushels per acre. And while economists know weather is the biggest factor fueling grain prices right now, they are also keeping a close eye on demand. I think a couple of things stick out beyond uh, the, the weather discussion, and, and one is just export demand as well as global competition, what's going to happen from South America in terms of competing with us uh, in those corn and soybean markets. I think uh, the, the survey participants are highlighting that uh, as, as important to the mix. Uh, they certainly continue to talk about the geopolitical risk uh, in, in the Black Sea and, and China in particular. And, and what's that mean for our ability to, to export uh, corn and soybean in, soybeans in particular as we look ahead? As tensions seem to be growing between the U.S. and China, the July Monthly Monitor also asked ag economists if they think the U.S. will enter into a trade war with China. The, the survey participants resoundingly said no, we don't think there'll be a trade war with China this year. So that, that was uh, uh, pretty strong in their response to that. Yet when you ask them about those trade relations, I think... You know, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and how is Russia's relationship with China at play? Um, you think about China's economic growth. I think we got some uh, quarterly GDP information there that would have suggested uh, lower growth than many expected for China. Uh, how, how do they deal with, with that? Uh, the population demographic continues to change there. Um, I think all those things are at play when we talk about just... Uh, some of the tensions that likely don't go away anytime uh, soon when we think about what's going on between the United States and China. The survey also asked economists to list potential events or factors that could shape agriculture over the next 12 months, but ones that aren't being talked about or getting enough attention today. Among the list, weather events around the globe that could warrant a broader conversation on climate, a potential recession in China, renewable diesel obscuring the importance of the RFS here in the U.S., labor issues and strikes in Canada potentially impacting potash prices. Well, from the possible impact that the heat wave could have on crop yields to why belly prices are now on fire. John Payne and Chip Nellinger are back to talk markets. That happens next. Chip Nellinger, John Payne rejoining us. All right, Chip, the latest drought monitor this week shows improvement. We have about 50% of the U.S. soybean crop now in drought, an improvement there, some improvements in the corn crop. As we look at the forecast next week, I mean, we've seen parts of Iowa and Illinois get some rain. It looks like things are turning drier. Of course, we're going to get this heat. Do you think it impacts the corn market or the soybean market more? Yeah, I, you know, I think, it, uh, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think this week the market started to get it a little bit right where corn kind of caught up to uh, where beans have been. Uh, at least initially, this heat is going to be uh, probably most affecting the corn market because you've got a lot of corn that's either starting or, or well into pollination 
and or grain fill. So it's really a matter of how long the heat lasts. If it's three days of 100 degrees and then you get some rain on top of it, probably not that big of a deal. If it's three weeks of 100 degree temperatures, like some of the weather models are hinting at, and no rain or the rain is pushed way further north because of the high pressure ridge, then you're talking about heat and dryness at the exact wrong time. And it's going to affect both corn and beans. Beans starting to flower. So, you know, really they're kind of both in the same boat right now. It's a matter of how long the heat lasts and how deep into August without rainfall. And really it's going to be critical to yield. And, and really you've seen that volatility start this week in the corn of the bean markets. It's really going to expand next week, depending on what the forecast says. Well, these forecasts and these weather models have been so conflicting this year, which has really had an impact um, even with, with the short-term changes in the weather forecast. But when you look at cattle inventory, John, I mean, we're having this conversation before USDA officially releases those cattle inventory reports. What if we don't see inventory change much? Do you think this momentum can continue in the cattle markets? Yeah, I, I think the we've got something that's that's got to break here. Either feeders are too cheap or too expensive or live is too cheap. And so you've got beef that's really come off here. 345 last week or two weeks ago, rather, was the high set. And we, we now see it really come off. Um, we think 280 maybe in the cards for the beef. So I don't think the report that you're going to see when you post watching this should be moving the market much. I think a lot of it is just about demand where corn works into the situation here. Um, but all in all, you know, crush margins aren't great for feeder cattle right now. Uh, they're really down in the deferred contracts, 24 contracts. So, again, I think you've got expensive feeders and somewhat cheap live, even though we're at record prices. I just don't see that holding forever. Well, based on some of the you know possibilities of what we could see with cattle inventories and cattle on feed, but also looking at the demand side, Chip, what do you think? Do you think something has to give here with the cattle markets? Yeah, something does have to give, and, and I agree with John. I, you know, I think you got to look at the inventory reports here, the multi-year drought. Obviously, the you know the the breeding stock liquidation is really what's uh, tightened things up a little bit. There's an argument that well, once uh, you know feeders get back or the cow calf guy gets back and starts retaining heifers to build that cow inventory, uh, that really you're going to see the most amount of tightness. But the problem is here that's supply and the demand side of it's the other equation. There's some indications here, although we bounced back a little bit this week on our export sales, that these high prices are starting to eat into demand. So that's the other side that we really have to watch closely. Obviously, the, the supplies are tight. Uh, they'll, they'll watch the inventory report. They'll watch the cattle on feed numbers. It takes a while to turn that ship as far as you know those numbers. That's a multi-year process. But the fear here is long term that we're really starting to chew into that demand base with these high prices, record high prices across the board on the beef side. John Chip, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break and talking about some of that extreme weather. We're off to Kentucky where they have just seen massive flooding this week. Really a, a quick change for them. We'll head to Kentucky next right here on U.S. Farm Report. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. We visited Mayfield, Kentucky last December, a year after a rare December tornado devastated their town. The community still working to rebuild was dealt another blow this week, adding more heartache to a community and entire county that's already battled through the extremes of Mother Nature. 
Intense rain in such a short amount of time, hail and strong winds. The powerful storm caused this life-threatening floods, dealing another blow to Mayfield, Kentucky. Wound up right here in this little community of 11.6 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. The historic rains this week washed out roads, engulfed cars, and drowned out crops. It's my 50th crop that I'm putting out. Never in my lifetime have I ever seen over 11 inches in a 24-hour period, and uh, we just couldn't handle it. Local farmer Keith Lowry says when they went to bed Tuesday night, the sun was shining, but the storm hit in the middle of the night, just setting over the area, generating massive amounts of rain. By the time I got into Mayfield, which is about 10 miles north of me, uh, it had already rained up to six inches, and Mayfield was flooded, and they wouldn't let you through the streets, and some cars drowned it out. The rain lasted all day with trees covering roads and floodwaters rising. Lowry's ground in the bottoms held the water for hours and he's now trying to assess the losses on his farm. The corn is going to be fine. It was probably six foot up on some of my corn in the bottoms, uh, but the waters got off. The water receded slowly on that, which is good. Uh, when it uh, when it goes back in the creek fast, it pulls the corn, but it did not do that this time. Now, the soybeans didn't fare as good. He says his soybean fields were covered in four feet of water. Anything over, typically we like to think 12 hours of water standing is not good on it. And uh, and then when the water does go back in, the soybeans are, were probably knee high or waist high, and it laid them down. And the tobacco in the area seems to have taken the biggest blow. The tobacco did not fare well at all. Tobacco, tobacco in this area is dark air-cured tobacco, and it needs... Uh, the, a little bit of water, but it doesn't need that much. So it's going to, it's laid down, the hail beat it down, the hail beat the, the leaves up. And when this hot sun comes out in the next few days, it will wilt down and it will eventually die. Mayfield and Graves County have been the bullseye of Mother Nature's wrath the past two years. The last time we spoke to Keith Lowry was last December, the one-year anniversary of an EF4 tornado that tore through Mayfield, the deadliest tornado in the state's history. The December 10th, Tornado just took a took a toll on especially Mayfield, and uh, then this this uh, this came you know, and I I spoke to the mayor and she just says that we cannot get a break. So what caused all the rain to dump in such a small area this week? It was just simply training thunderstorms just following one another. Eric Snodgrass with Nutrient Ag Solutions says it was caused by the trough of low pressure that's bringing the heat to the south and the cooler weather to the north. So what's happened is in the middle, that's where the boundary is. And so what happens is storms do what we call training, where they find the front and they run along the front. They don't go away from it. They just stay on it. And as the storms kept rolling over the same boundary, it continued to generate more rain. It could have been wet before it, wet or dry before it. You get 10 inches of rain in such a short amount of time, you're going to have problems like this. 18 months ago, the area experienced a tornado. Last year, it was drought. And now this year, they're dealing with flooding. I don't know... Uh what it is, but we're uh, the farmers and even the people of Mayfield and Graves County and Western Kentucky are very resilient. Uh, it's just another, another hurdle we've got to cross and uh, we, we will be fine. It's going to take a little while. When I spoke to Keith earlier this week, you could just hear the exhaustion in his voice. I just can't imagine what that community is going through. Well, we need to take a quick break, but John Phipps looks at how the U.S. is working to turn up the power with better connectivity nationwide. Customer support is next. HVDC, part two.
There's a lot of complexity of transmitting power across the U.S., but also rethinking how it's done. John Phipps gives us a look in customer support this week. Last week, in an answer, I offered a brief refresher course on how our high-voltage AC electrical transmission system works, which it looks a little bit like this. Around the world, countries are adding DC systems, which look more like this. There are multiple reasons for this change. The primary driver is the need to get electricity to places far distant from generators. Ample solar and wind energy for in our west, for example, is needed on the metropolitan centers on the coast. Better electrical highways would help. HVDC lines have become the answer around the world, although not so much here. Here are some of the factors. First off, the rectifiers and inverters to connect HVDC to local AC distribution are expensive, and so the whole system doesn't break even uh, until the lines reach more than about 650 miles. Landowners on the route should appreciate this advantage. HVDC towers are much smaller with fewer lines compared to AC lines carrying the same amount of power. Solar and wind supplied power need not be synchronized as it is as is necessary for AC lines. Greater capacity means fewer lines and towers would be needed and HVDC gets more economical the longer the line, just the opposite of AC lines. HVDC is a better answer for undersea power transmission, which leads to what I think will be the workaround for the challenge of trying to get cross-country lines built, especially in the U.S. For example, the planned 2,600-mile sun cable from Queensland, Australia, undersea to Singapore would supply 15% of that country's power and boost both economies. Wind and, to a lesser extent, solar power developers are coupling HVDC undersea cables with ever larger offshore turbines and arrays. U.S. geography and population is almost ideal for such a solution. For wind, coastal waters avoid contentious land disputes and locate turbines where winds are more constant and stronger. Along our densely populated coasts, out-of-sight, out-of-mind generation escapes a lot of legal and economic headaches, not to mention public resistance. American opposition to infrastructures of all kinds, from pipelines to transmission lines, may slow our transition to renewable energy, but it could also spawn some ingenious alternatives. Thank you, John. Well, county fairs are in full swing for some of you, and whether it's the first or decades of fair fun, we celebrate the work and the people who make the magic happen every year. From the Farm is next. Well, it was an exciting week at our house with 4-H finally back in our rural community. My little girls participated in their first county fair. And with the smiles, as you can see, and the laughter, it served as a much needed reminder of the hard work, the time, and the people it takes to keep the magic of county fairs alive. And so we asked viewers to share some of their special moments at the county fair. 
Karina Brandt says 4-H started this year with her daughter, who's a mini 4-H'er. She showed a sheep and a steer with the help of two amazing mentors, and she says it was those mentors who helped set the stage for her to continue her projects. And Dana Plattner's son experienced his first year as a regular 4-H member, and it was a success. Several indoor exhibits are eligible for the state fair, including Exploring Agronomy Project, and her daughter was able to shine as she showed her two dogs. For some, it was a first with trying something new. For others, it was five years of showing, walking away with a champion heifer. But no matter how many years these youth have been prepping animals or projects, it's also the confidence they gain through showmanship that will last a lifetime. And it's the time and the effort it takes to get projects ready for the county fair and then to see the hard work in the spotlight that creates unforgettable memories and smiles. And these treasured ribbons that pile up at home, well, they're a reminder of the hours that went in the fair building future leaders. For us, the first county fair will be one we will never forget. Kinsler's scream of excitement filled the room when she found out that her cake made it to the state fair. And for those farmers and local businesses who then show up at the auction to support these youth in counties across the U.S., there's an immense amount of gratitude for all of you. It's the people who help teach these youth, then show up to support them year after year, who make these county fairs a success and such a pillar of rural America. I don't think I'll ever forget that smile. And if you have a special moment at the county fair that you would still like to share with us, you can do that on the U.S. Farm Report Facebook page. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.